History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 313th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. On this episode, we're going to feature a place that I recently did a ghost tour in, and that is Lawrenceville, Georgia, a wonderful little town. I'm excited to share it with you, and I'll be sharing it with a live audience of fur babies. Yes, we have three of them here in the studio with me. You all know about Savvy. And you know about Riley? Well, now we have added Mia. We adopted her over the weekend. We think she's a Cairn Terrier, Corgi mix of something, but she is absolutely sweet and adorable. So if you hear some extra jingling in the background, it's not ghosts, folks. It's just fur babies. Before I get into telling you about Lawrenceville, I'd love to welcome some more people into our spectacular crew. We have Jackie, who spells her name very uniquely with a C-Q-U-E, Susan, Ethan, Brian with a Y, Christina with a C-H, Sheila, Marcos, Cisco, who is the host of Journey Through the Gate podcast, Clydeen, I hope I pronounced that right, Lori with an I-E, Matthew, Katya, Hilda, Sherry with an I, Steve, Mimi, Kathy with a Y, Amy with an I and an I-E, Kim, Daniel, Tom, Brianna, Meg, Florence, Jim, Michelle with two L's, Leah, and Paul. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment, Naughty. The moment Naughty was suggested by Brianne Sanford. Pedro Ruggiero was 55 years old when he gained some fame but the story behind this is quite tragic. Pedro became famous as the number one tourist attraction in Garden City in Kansas. This lasted for 20 years. People called him Old Bill and they came from all over by the thousands over the years to see him. Sometimes they would find him lying down. Other times he'd be leaning against a wall. But every time, they would find him dead. Yes, Old Bill was dead and on display at a funeral home. He'd been mummified with a special embalming fluid that contained metal, which helped preserve the body better, and as it mixed with air, the mummification took place. Pedro's tragic story began on April 29, 1911. The quiet Italian immigrant boarded a train in Dodge City, heading for Garden City carrying a suitcase with some lunch meat, an empty bottle of wine, six cans of tobacco, seven boxes of matches, and a loaf of rye bread. He also had a straight razor in his pocket. About 19 miles from Garden City, Pedro pulled the razor out of his pocket, jumped up on a seat, put the razor to his throat and yelled, Here goes, boys. Here goes. And then he slit his throat. He was taken to A.R. Clark Funeral Home where they embalmed him, hoping someone would claim his body. 
And even though the director was able to find a wife in Italy and a brother in San Francisco, no one wanted to claim the body. So they kept him and put him in a new suit every year and shellacked him to prevent mold and continued to display him. And it stayed this way until 1938, when a fire ravaged the center of town, taking out the funeral home and cremating Pedro. And he might have been forgotten for not a photo that had been taken reminding everyone that for 20 years, an embalmed man became a tourist attraction. And that certainly is odd. Grab your slippers, hot chocolate, flashlight, and maybe even that baseball bat. And now, this month in history. In the month of November, on the 2nd, in 1920, the Okoe Massacre occurred. The Okoe Massacre was a race riot in which a white mob attacked people of color in the town of Okoe in Florida. For a year, people in the African-American community had been making inroads to getting people of color registered to vote. November 2nd, Election Day, came along and a black man named Moses Norman went into a precinct to vote and he was turned away. Moses went and told a judge that the white men were trying to prevent his right to vote and the judge told him to go back and try again. So he did. He tried a second time, but this time he took a gun with him. And this apparently angered a group of those white men who decided to teach him a lesson. They thought he was hiding out at July Perry's house, and so they went over there as a mob and beat on the door. July Perry was integral in getting the people of color registered to vote, and this is why Moses Norman went to his home. July felt threatened with all these men around his home, and he got a gun out. He fired off some shots, and unfortunately, two men were killed and another was wounded. And that was it. The night would end with nearly every African-American business burned to the ground along with their schools, homes, and churches. As these people ran for their lives, they were shot at, with nearly 60 of them being killed. July Perry had run for his life but was found, and while he was en route to a jail, a mob pulled him from the car and lynched him, hanging him from a lamppost near where the judge lived. No one was ever prosecuted for his murder, and for years after this, Okoe was basically an all-white town. The Okoe Massacre would be described as the, quote, single bloodiest day in modern American political history, end quote. Lawrenceville is a quaint town about 40 minutes outside of Atlanta and is actually the second oldest town in the Atlanta metropolitan area. The historic downtown is full of storefront restaurants and shops. One would not think that this city has a paranormal essence to it, but as we found while taking a ghost tour, there are many stories of the unexplained here. Not something a city that is the headquarters of the Presbyterian Church of America would really want to champion, but their city website does have a link for ghost tours. Join me as I share the history, lore, and hauntings of Lawrenceville, Georgia. This 
second oldest city in the Atlanta area, was officially incorporated on December 15, 1821, and Lawrenceville is the county seat for Gwinnett County. We really enjoyed walking the downtown block area and observing the older buildings and churches found here. We posted several photos up on Instagram. We found out that the city was named for a Lawrence, a War of 1812 Navy commander, Captain James Lawrence. He became famous for his words to his men, tell the men to fire faster and not to give up the ship, fight her till she sinks. He did die in the war. This downtown area was established because of nearby streams, and by 1824, a courthouse lay in the center of town with multiple businesses branching out from it. This area was originally dubbed Honest Alley because of the trade that was exchanged here, which was anything but honest, apparently. This was the seedy area of town. The main industry in Lawrenceville was cotton, followed by corn, lumber, and livestock. The late 1800s brought the railroad and the town became a transportation center. The city has continued to flourish as Atlanta flourished and today is undergoing a revitalization that was evident in the theater and its expansion into a bigger complex. It was outside this theater, the Aurora Theater, that we met our tour. And just a fun little aside, for those of you who've listened to the podcast for any length of time, you know that a little girl named Victoria sometimes shows up in our bumpers. Victoria comes from the Lyft podcast. And her creator is Dan Foytick, who has joined me on a couple of episodes as well. Dan not only hosts The Lift, but he also hosts The Wicked Library. And as we were standing in line to check in for the Lawrenceville Ghost Tour, inside the theater, I glanced over at a flyer sitting there and saw a logo I recognized. I went, wait a minute, that's The Wicked Library logo. So I snatched it up and looked and I went, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. So I messaged Dan, who also is my friend, and I said, I can't believe I'm standing in this theater that you're going to be in in two days doing a live presentation in this little town near Atlanta. I mean, what are the chances? So it was just a very, very cool bit of synchronicity. Madame Macabre was our guide on the Lawrenceville Ghost Tour. Her real name is Cynthia Rinty, and she was an excellent storyteller and also happens to be the director of the tour group. You can find this tour at scarystroll.com. The tour started at the Aurora Theater, which had originally been the Methodist Church. The Methodist Cemetery was not located next to the church, but rather down the street and then up a hill and is named the New Hope Methodist Cemetery. I did find two cemeteries in the city, so I'm not sure if that's exactly its name or if it's the other one. Fortunately, I didn't realize that these cemeteries were so close and didn't get a chance to visit them. We didn't have a whole lot of time here, but I wish I had because apparently this one's haunted. The earliest burial I found in this cemetery was for an infant in 1850. Madame Macabre told us that a well-known unnamed paranormal investigator considers this cemetery the most active cemetery that he has ever been in. And I believe that investigator, if my investigations were correct, is Patrick Burns. I may not be right, but I'm pretty positive that's who she was talking about. He spent the night there with a crew from 11 Alive News one October. They brought a thermometer with them on what was a balmy night, and it registered a cold pocket of air, and their thermometer registered a temperature drop of 30 degrees, and their camera batteries completely discharged in five seconds. This happened a second time that evening, so to say that it might be a fluke, okay, I'll give you once, but twice? That's something strange. I have some audio here from that report that played on the news. There's something very, very active in this area here, I think. A rundown cemetery near Lawrenceville. We find pockets of freezing air. 
what was the temperature out there? 50? 50 degrees. 32 degrees on the, on the ground. I see your breath. A possible sign of ghosts. 16 degrees. Is a sudden temperature drop. No, it's 37 degrees now. 33, back down to 33. Our digital cameras capture strange balls of light. Some believe this is spirit energy. There was nothing reflecting light, and the cemetery is absolutely dark. But there's more. Listen. Is this a voice from the other side? Well, I just caught something moving. It's as if something wants us to know they are here. Did you hear that woman talking in the background? There were only three men in the cemetery that night. When the reporter was asked if possibly they recorded over a tape that had this woman recorded on it and somehow it bled through, he said, sure, that can happen, I guess, but I've never had that happen before. Here is a second report about the same story. Now, while Burns tells us the sad story of the cemetery, it seems someone else wants to chime in. Listen carefully. There are only men in the cemetery. Our TV cameras haven't picked up audio quite like this before. And as she speaks, your batteries are dying now. Battery after battery, whoa, suddenly dies. And every time that we've been out there, we've gotten some good results. Good if you like being around weird stuff like that. People have asked me, did we hear the voices while we were out there? No. And then they ask, well, could it have been something that was old on the tape or maybe something we picked up on radio waves? Well, if it did happen, it's never happened to us like that before. Cynthia also was in the cemetery on her own one day and decided to walk through using a recorder to see if she could catch anything. She listened back to the whole tape and got nothing until the very end. Here she is sharing that. See what you think you hear. I hear a far off train. I hear the wind occasionally until I get to the very end of the tape. First, I'll be saying how I am heading back to my car and back to the Aurora Theater. But listen. So I hear something there. To me, it sounds like mama. So I have captured my very first EVP. I hear mama too. The ghost tour does offer specific tours of the cemetery. So if I'm ever back in the Atlanta area, I think I might take them up on that one. You know, I love cemeteries and if they're haunted, even better. And speaking of touring haunted cemeteries, we did that right before Halloween. We went through Greenwood Cemetery here in Orlando. We featured it in our Haunted Cemeteries 1. We got a chance to investigate it. We got some interesting evidence. We did put up a bonus cast for those of you that are at the $2 and above level over on Patreon and at PayPal. And we also did a Facebook Live in our Losers Club. Remember, just a dollar gets you in there and you can watch all of that great stuff. We stopped at the Jewel Oaks House, which is now a coffee house known as Boulder Creek Coffee. Julius C. Oaks, or Jewel as everyone called him, was born in 1888 and died in 1966 at the age of 78. 
He was a former mayor of the city and lived in the house in the 1940s, and that's where they get the name for it. The house was actually built in the 1890s. This house is historical, but apparently not haunted because we didn't hear any stories about it, but it is a gorgeous building. What Madame Macabre did point out is a line of shops that were right across the street. She told us that she was delivering flyers there one day, and in each shop she was told that there was something going on that couldn't be explained. So she's handing them out, telling them, hey, I run this ghost tour. Would you mind putting some of these flyers out as an advertisement? And in every single shop, they were like, oh, well, I have a story for you. One of those places was a spa with a basement that has a weird cold spot where cell phones won't work. Another store experiences knocking on a back door that opens onto an alley. Whenever they open the door, they find no one there or in the alley. There's another store that's a jewelry store named Sparkle. It was owned by a woman named Meg. She was unpacking a box of product and checking pieces off of a list, and she had this one piece in particular. She checked it off a list, and then there was this big noise behind her. It caused her to drop the piece and spin around to see what caused the noise. She didn't see anything. She turned back. She couldn't find this one-of-a-kind piece anywhere. She looked all through the packing, through the box. She couldn't find it anywhere. About two weeks later, the piece reappeared in plain sight on the other side of the shop. We continued making our way throughout the city, and we arrived in Honest Alley, which I'd mentioned earlier. Remember, this is the seedy side of town. At first, when she mentioned Honest Alley, I'm thinking, this must be where a handshake makes a deal, right? Absolutely not. This is where all of the ladies of the evening could be found, the gambling halls, the bars to drink in, that kind of thing. This is the kind of area, of course, where a child would never want to go. You would definitely tell your kids to steer clear of here. Edgar Dunlap was a child, and his mother had told him never to walk down that alley. And he never did, until this one time. He'd been visiting friends across town, and it had gotten fairly late. He knew he was going to be late for dinner. If he could make a shortcut through Honest Alley, he might be on time. But Honest Alley was really really dark, and a storm was brewing. The wind was whipping. The trees were going back and forth, and this alley is dark, and he's been told, don't go into it. He knows it's dangerous. He really must have been worried about his mom being mad, so mom's fury was worse than going through this dark alley just as a storm starts blowing through. He decides to take the shortcut. This is in 1924. He makes it through the pitch black alley without anybody bothering him. It's amazing. Many times he had a start and then he'd realize, oh, it was just a trash can lid blowing around or it was a cat crying or something like that, a banging door. So he had a few spooks as he was getting through the alley, but he made it through okay. He starts to step forward out of the alley and then all of a sudden these two skeletons come walking in front of him. Edgar was so frightened by this sight that he passed out. Some men saw him fall over. They take him home, and when he wakes up, he tells his mom what he saw. Now, she's upset. He's gone through Honest Alley, but then she's like, what are you talking about? You saw two skeletons walking past you when you came out of the alley? You must have lost your mind. She didn't believe him, but the next morning, she changed her mind because in the paper she read that a tornado apparently touched down in the local cemetery and pulled this hundred-year-old tree up out of the ground. And for those of you who've either seen the aftermath of a tornado or even hear hurricanes will do the same thing. They'll pull the tree up, root ball and all, right out of the ground and tip it over. 
Well, that's what happened to this tree, only the tree continued to go, and connected to its root ball were a couple of skeletons from this cemetery. So as the tree's blowing by, all Edgar sees are these two skeletons that look like they're walking right past him. I don't blame him for being a little bit scared. What an amazing story. I tried to see if I could find it in an old newspaper somewhere, and I couldn't track it down. I hope it's true, because it's a great story. The U.S. defense industry is large, complex, and competitive. It is also lucrative for those companies able to navigate it successfully. The American Society of Military Comptrollers helps bridge the gap between the boardroom and the battlefield while supporting transformation in the defense sector. The Business of Defense podcast brings you inside the companies working to achieve this directly from the business leaders and to understand how they create value for their companies and their customers. For more information on ASMC, visit asmconline.org. We passed the wonderful scents of restaurants along the way, and there was this one that really caught my eye because it had one of those sandwich boards out in front, and written on it was Crab Encrusted Grouper. I don't know what that is. I've never tried it, but I absolutely love crab, and I absolutely love grouper. It is the best fish on the planet, and you've married those two together? If I'm ever back in Lawrenceville, I am going to the Oyster Bay Seafood Cafe. And I might get lucky and bump into a ghost there because it is haunted. It was opened in October of 2009. Before this, the building was home to the Flying Saucer Retro Cafe and Bakery. I'm not sure what was there before. It was a very old building, so I'm sure it's had many, many incarnations. Tucker was the son of the owner of Oyster Bay, and he felt like he always had to do all the dirty work. When he was a young kid, I mean, this was the family business. You work every day. You work very hard. And he had to do all of the grunt work. And he really, really hated it. He got tired of it, was always mumbling to himself about it. One day while they were renovating, Tucker's dad told him to bring a box of nails over. So he goes and gets the nails. As he's coming back with them, he trips and spills the nails everywhere. Well, you can imagine how upset he is. He starts grumbling to himself. He can't believe that he just spilled all these nails. Now he's got to pick them all up and put them back in this box. His dad's going to be upset because it took him so long to do this. He's looking down. He's really focused on these nails. And then he notices that this foot is pushing the nails towards him. This makes the nails come to him more quickly. So he's able to get them back in the box faster. He's very thankful. He looks up to thank the person who's attached to these feet. And he finds out it's basically feet that go up these legs to a waist. And there's nothing above that. Well, of course, he is terrified. He grabs the box of nails. He goes running into his dad and he tells his dad, oh, my God, I just saw this. I don't know. It was just these legs. There were just these legs. I didn't see anything else. There was nothing. There was no head. There was no torso. Nothing. It's just legs. And his dad told him to stop with all of this foolishness. So Tucker let it go. Maybe he just imagined it. A few years later, Tucker again finds himself doing some grunt work. He's told to unload some boxes of canned goods. So he's doing it. He's very bored. He's angry. His buddies are all at the football game. That's where he should be. But no, here he is emptying out all of these cans of tomatoes. In a fit of rage, he grabs one of the cans of tomatoes. He flings it at a wall. It bounces off the wall and it's coming back at him at full velocity. And then all of a sudden, this hand reaches out right in front of him, grabs the can and sets it down on a shelf. Well, Tucker's like, oh my God, that just thank you. You just saved me. I almost got hit full on with that can. He looks over to see what's attached to the hand and he sees an arm and then nothing else. It's just a hand and an arm and then it disappears. Well, he freaks out again 
tells his dad about this thing, and his dad once again tells him, stop with the foolishness, get back to work, probably thinking he's trying to get out of doing this so he can go to the ball game. Likely story. This brings us to last year. Tucker is now an adult, but he still works in the family business here at the Oyster Bay Seafood Cafe, and he's still doing a lot of the grunt work. And as I said, when you have a family business, especially when it's a restaurant, it's every day you're open. You work every day, except for on Christmas Day, they were closed. So the whole family is gathered at the house. They're sitting down to Christmas dinner, and all of a sudden, their cell phones start going off from their security company telling them that the security alarm is going off at the restaurant. Tucker's dad is ready to watch ball game. He's like, Tucker, you need to go do this. Your mom and sisters are taking care of the dishes. I'm going to watch the ball game. You need to go to the restaurant and reset the alarm. Make sure everything's okay. Obviously, Tucker's not very happy about this. Here he is having to go do the grunt work again. He gets there. He's very upset. He found the back door locked. So he's not sure how anybody could have gotten in. He unlocks it. He comes in. He doesn't see anything, but the alarm is blaring. So he goes over. He resets it and he decides maybe I better look around the restaurant a little bit, make sure everything's okay. He doesn't see anything out of place. And then he looks over at the bar and he sees a man sitting at the bar. There's a bottle of liquor and a couple of shot glasses. And the thing that he really notices about this figure sitting at the bar is that he has no arm and nothing below the waist. So it's basically a torso, head, and arm that are sitting at the bar. The figure turns, looks at him, waves him over, and he pours him a shot. Tips up the whiskey glass, fills up both shot glasses, pushes it over to Tucker, indicating have a drink. He tips back his glass, slams it. So Tucker's like, what the hell? I give up. I'll go ahead and have a shot. He probably felt like he needed a shot after seeing this ghost. So he tips back his shot glass, slams the drink, puts the shot glass back down on the bar, and notices the ghost is gone. Not only that, but the other shot glass is gone. So he has no idea where the ghost or shot glass are. He just thinks, you know what? It, obviously, there's something connected here. I see a ghost with his head and his torso and an arm one time. Then I see his arm and hand another time. Then I see his body below the waist another time. I don't know what he's trying to tell me here. Clearly, there's a ghost here. He just washed up his shot glass, put it back up, made sure the alarm was set, and left. This was a pretty new story for Madame Macabre to tell, and she was fascinated to hear it. And especially since this is something that had gone on through the years and she felt like Tucker is a very trustworthy person and who's going to make up a story like this because it's so improbable, right? But she wanted to know because she likes to know about the history, where could this spirit have come from? So she's looking back through a lot of the old Gwinnett County historical papers and she comes across something that happened about 30 years ago. The city wanted to put in a connector between two one-way streets, and there was a cemetery in the vicinity. Now, they thought they were clear of this cemetery when they started to dig for this connector. They dug into a bank with a bulldozer and realized that, nope, they're not totally clear of the cemetery because they just busted open a grave. And when they did that, they split this skeleton in half at the waist, and I can imagine that maybe his arm was removed at the same time. So now that we have this skeleton in pieces, is that why we have a ghost in pieces? People who walked by could clearly see this skeleton 
had been cut in two. And so Madame Macabre and myself as well wonder if this could be who is the ghost at Oyster Bay. There was another location that we did not visit. I think it's out a little ways. It's called Little Gardens, and it's a colonial-style former mansion and plantation that is today a gorgeous wedding venue. It was built in the 1800s, and it features a glorious ballroom with a wall of French glass doors that open up into these gardens. Apparently, a woman died here in the 1900s, and she supposedly haunts the place, manifesting as cold spots, disembodied footsteps, and the restroom doors are said to open and close by themselves. Obviously, it's not too frightening that people won't have their weddings there because it does a brusque business. And apparently, ladies, they have a bridal suite upstairs that has all this plush furniture and just makes you feel like a queen as you're getting ready for your special day. And with these beautiful gardens right there, it's perfect for picture taking. We head down Calaboose Alley and stand outside a small concrete building. This is the Old City Jail. Calaboose, I guess, actually means jail. So that's why the alley is named that way. There's a very tragic tale connected to this place. Ellick and his wife Betsy were slaves owned by a horrible drunkard named Colonel James Austin. He abused his slaves and one night he busted into the shack that served as Ellick and Betsy's home. He grabbed Betsy and said he was going to take what was his. Ellick grabbed Austin and threw him off his wife. He told Betsy to run while Austin turned his attention to Ellick. Ellick managed to push Austin again and he prayed that the man was so drunk that he wouldn't remember anything the next day and he ran. Well, Austin was pissed. So he goes back up to his house and he grabs himself his cavalry sword. He comes back out and he sees that Alec is scrambling up a ladder into a sleeping loft and he follows him up there. Alec had just gotten to the top, was turning around to grab the ladder and pull it up so that Austin could not follow him. But unfortunately, he was not quick enough and Austin starts coming up this ladder. He's wobbling as he's coming up there. Obviously, he's not very strong on his feet because he is really, really drunk. And he's swinging that cavalry sword all over the place. And Alec is trying to dodge it as best he can. The loft is not a very big area. Thankfully, Austin finally takes this huge swing. And as he lifts the sword over his head, it gets caught up into the wood of the roof of this loft. And he can't get it out. He's like trying to pull it, trying to pull it. So then Alec comes over and he's trying to pull it out too. They're fighting over this sword. As they're fighting and pushing at each other, Alec gives him a really good shove. And it's so good that it knocks him right out of the loft and down onto the ground and it kills him. Well, Alec is thinking to himself, like any reasonable person would, this is an accident. Not only that, it really is self-defense. This man not only was going to attack my wife, but he was trying to kill me. And we're fighting over this sword. I push him. He falls out of the loft, hits his head. I'm just going to go down to the police station and tell them what happened. Again, Alec is a person of color who is a slave. I don't know where he missed that in the equation because I would think he would know they're not going to believe you or it's really not going to matter to them, which is what the case was. He faced a judge who found him guilty and he sentenced him to death. He was thrown into a small jail and that's this jail that we were standing in front of that still exists today. And we got to go inside this jail and see something that was left behind by Alec. Today, it just looks like it's kind of a storage area and then the jail is behind it. And you can see back in this jail area where Ellick had been kept, he had used a metal slat to start chipping away at the concrete of his cell. And there's these huge chunks that are taken out of it. 
People outside of the jail heard the noise, and they notified the sheriff, who was really angry to hear this. He chained Ellick to the floor by both his wrists and his ankles. He was left that way for three days and nights. He begged the sheriff to please unlock him and at least let him just get the blood going back into his limbs the way that it should. The sheriff would not listen to him. Ellick passed the time by singing songs for Betsy. And there was one song in particular that he made up asking her to meet him in heaven. And he sang this over and over and over again. He was hanged a month later. But his spirit still seems to be inside the jail. People claimed to hear a disembodied voice singing a song to a woman named Betsy. We went inside this small building that was built in 1832 and still had the barred doors and metal beds. And like I said, even though it's being used for storage now, the remnants of the past were clearly still here too. Madame Macabre said that one night while giving a tour, she had sung Ellick's song and she kept hearing the word me echoed after her. She thought she was hearing things until everybody was out of the jail. And then a person on the tour asked if people heard something weird. Another person said they heard someone else singing at the same time that Madame Macabre was singing. All the people on the tour agreed that they heard a second person who was singing at the same time as she was. Madame Macabre said that they've caught orbs, felt cold spots, had shoelaces become untied, and people have been touched. We ourselves didn't experience anything. We tried to see if we could get it to turn the flashlight on. We had our EMF detector, and of course I had my trusty recorder with me, and nothing. Our guide pointed out that last year she had found out the exact dates that all of this happened, and the night we were doing our tour, October 11th, was the first night Ellick spent in the jail. She said when she was giving her earlier tour that evening, she had felt a lot of anxiety while she was in there. So even though we were there on a key evening, we didn't experience any of that energy that she had felt earlier. So maybe the stars weren't aligned quite correctly. She also told us some more stories as we were leaving the jail area. At the end of the tour, I said to her, you're sensitive, aren't you? And she said, yes. And I said, what did you see? And she said, one of the things that I saw was children running up and down the alleyway. I have reason to believe that in addition to Ellie's tragic soul being inside the jail, there are playful children that will occasionally go into the area that we were in. One, on one time, uh, there is a exuberant 13-year-old uh, boy, another guy, says, huh, I bet this tour is going to be so lame, I bet we don't see a ghost. This guy, the tour guide thinks, and so as they're telling the story inside the jail, he looks over and this 13-year-old boy during the summer is holding on to his waistband of his shorts really tightly. <laughs> and the guy can see tension on the material as if someone is grabbing the bottom of his shorts and pulling down. And so the, the, the teenager is having to work to keep them on. And another time, uh, somebody's shoelaces got untied so loudly that it made a popping noise. So I, to me, that sounds like a playful, mischievous child. This was really a great tour. It had a lot of great history. Madame Macabre was a great storyteller. You can tell that she definitely works in theater in some way. She was very theatrical, but it wasn't uh, what I would say like over the top or jump scares, which are things that I don't like on ghost tours. I really enjoyed her on this tour. And if you guys are ever in Lawrenceville, I encourage you to take the Lawrenceville ghost tour. 
Are these places in Lawrenceville haunted? That is for you to decide. I want to encourage you guys to check out the website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send me some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. I wanted to give a shout out to Sean Fitzgibbon. He is a big fan of the History Ghost Bump podcast, and he just got done writing and illustrating a graphic nonfiction novel about the Crescent Hotel. And he hasn't been able to find a publisher for it yet, but wow, I loved the artwork that I was seeing. It looks like it's going to be fantastic. I can't wait till it's out for the general public. I'll keep you guys updated on it. If you want to follow him, you can do that at Instagram. Just look up Sean P. Fitzgibbon, and that's Fitz, F-I-T-Z, and Gibbon with two B's like as in boy. And then I had an owner of a haunted property reach out to me that we have featured here on the podcast before, Saratoga Homestead. We did this back in 2015. And the new owner there is named James Walk. And he said, I'm the new owner. I bought the land via tax sale posted by the county and received deed this month. We'll be starting restoration efforts on the Saratoga in the coming year and opening up for small groups to visit as we go along. The plan is a full restoration and to use the site for a combination veterans retreat and local business with the Living Museum of the site's history. I visited the site last week and never felt anything negative or foreboding, but we didn't feel alone. I've talked to a few people who've had more experiences at the site, and there are rumors aplenty, but time will tell. So I was really excited to hear this, and I had written him back, and I just told him I love his idea for having this as a veteran's retreat, and that I was even more interested in hearing his stories, because for those of you that have listened to the Saratoga Homestead episode, you know I had a hell of a time finding any hauntings going on here. I was really disappointed. I'm like, this place is a TB hospital. It's got to have all kinds of stories, and I couldn't find anything, really. So he wrote me back and he said, I've had two experiences already, and I say that from the perspective of someone who's never given the paranormal a second thought, which puts it right up on a higher level to me. I love hearing stuff from skeptics to begin with. First, inside the hospital walking around with my wife, we were were the only ones there. I kept feeling like someone was touching the back of my hair, but only when we were in a certain area. Second, Steve Bront and I were looking around the basement of the caretaker's house. We were together and there was a large bang back at the stairs and we thought it was my wife stepping on something when she came off the stairs. However, we both turned around with flashlights and my wife was nowhere to be seen. Right after we went upstairs and it turns out she was in the hospital, not even in the house with us. Neither felt creepy or scary, but it was two days in a row for me, so I'm now at least open to the possibility. My Facebook page has a few people that have commented based on their own experiences And it's all over the place. Lots of stuff repeated off the web, so I don't place a lot of stock in it, but it is interesting. Someone said it all depends on your intentions. If you come inside with positive intent, it's okay. Other people were there for no good reason and left scared. And then he invited me to come have a visit, which I definitely hope to take him up on sometime when I'm in the New York area. So it was really cool to hear that he'd had those experiences. And then Jenny wrote me with a wonderful story. She said, I totally love your podcast. I've wanted to share this story with you for a while. I actually have a few stories, but I'll share just this one for now. So I look forward to hearing the other ones, Jenny. This story happened to a college friend of mine. I went to the University of Maryland. This was back in the 90s. I lived and worked on campus and met lots of good people. One of my good friends would spend the summer at her aunt's house in Pennsylvania. She loved visiting her aunt, uncle, and cousins, but the house totally creeped her out. See, the house had its own ghost. It was built way back in the early 1800s. It was a four-story brownstone-type structure. Every time my friend would talk to me about the ghost, she would just call it my aunt's ghost. 
meaning the ghost her aunt had at her house, not that her aunt was dead and was a ghost. Get it? So we were a few weeks into the summer, and at 3 a.m., my apartment phone rings. This was way before cell phones were affordable to the public. I have family in California, so this scared me because the only time people call at that hour is for emergencies. I snatch up the phone, and I could hear a muffled cry. I say hello about four times and finally say in a really angry, scared voice, Who is this? My friend, let's call her Mary, started to whisper in the phone, Jenny, it's me, Mary. And then she started to sob. It takes me about five minutes to calm her down and finally ask her, What is wrong? Are you okay? Do you need me to come get you? Where are you? She starts to talk and tells me, I'm really, really scared. I'm at my aunt's house in Pennsylvania and I'm home alone and I made the ghost really mad. She goes on to say that when she knows she's going to be home alone and the entire family gone, she never leaves a room after dark and she makes sure she's in her room by dark. This is some rule or agreement that the family has made with the ghost. Can you imagine having to make an agreement with the ghost? Okay, we'll be in our rooms when it gets dark. But this night she had fallen asleep on the couch in the basement watching TV. She was awoken by hearing someone running up and down all four flights of stairs while simultaneously opening and slamming every bedroom door in the house. She knew it was the ghost, and he was angry that she dared to be out of her room past dark. She'd actually thought she'd make a run for her room, but then it all of a sudden got bone-chilling silent, and then she heard heavy footsteps coming down the basement stairs. She was trapped. The way the basement is set up, the stairs are at the back of the room. The couch she had fallen asleep on has its back to the stairs, and the TV is on the opposite wall of the stairs. She thought she could fake being asleep still, so she turned over, covered herself up to her neck with her blanket, and closed her eyes tight, which should be safe, right? I mean, she's got herself covered. She heard the heavy footsteps enter the basement and walk to the back of the couch. She felt someone lean over the couch, and the ghost whispered in her ear, You think you're scared now? Just wait. Mary bolted up and ran all the way up four flights of stairs to her attic bedroom, slamming her door shut, locking it, and pushing her dresser in front of the door. The ghost started to laugh and continued to run up and down the stairs, slamming doors for about five minutes, then stopped. That's when she called me. She dragged the phone into her closet and she was sobbing, whispering on the phone to me. I offered to drive the few hours to come get her, but she said no. She just wanted me to talk to her and pray with her, hoping the ghost would go away. I told her I knew people who could get rid of this ghost and she seemed almost more afraid of doing that than anything. She said, no, this is my aunt's ghost. She'd be so upset if I got rid of him. So I prayed with her and helped her pray, and in her prayer demanded he leave her alone in the name of Jesus Christ. She said she felt almost better right away. I again offered to come get her, and she said she'd be fine. She was going to sleep in her closet with her scriptures to keep her safe, and her family was supposed to be home tomorrow around 10 a.m. She'd be fine, but that she wanted me to talk to her until she fell asleep. So I did. From that time forward, she was never alone in that house again, but the ghost stuck around and would occasionally let them know he was still there. That's one really scary story. This poor friend must be sensitive to that kind of thing because once she returned to campus, she was one of the resident advisors for the dorm and part of getting the dorm ready for the students to arrive the next day. She had to check the keys on each dorm room and then make sure each door was locked and then she could turn in for the night. Her boyfriend was over and they were watching videos and they fell asleep around 1 a.m. They were awoken to the sounds of people running up and down the hallway and doors slamming. Now, her boyfriend's about six foot eight inches tall and very scary looking when mad. He tore out of her dorm room, ready to rip heads off. No one was supposed to be there. They thought it was other staff playing tricks. And the minute he opened the door, it was silent, and every dorm room door was opened. My friend had the only keys to those rooms. This was at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County in Catonsville, Maryland. 
That school is majorly haunted. I don't think there's anything on the internet about it, just stories from staff members that walk the halls late at night and who are on campus when it's empty. That's when things happened, when school was out and the dorms were empty. That was pretty creepy, and apparently your friend seems to attract ghosts to her. Thanks for sharing that, Jenny. I've gotten a lot of five-star reviews lately. Thank you so much for leaving those. Please leave a review on whatever app you happen to listen to. If you are so inclined, I would appreciate it. I want to thank you all for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. I'd like to thank Mindy Hole for your one-time donation. And thank you, Cynthia Moss, for raising your giving. We're going to be moving you into a chest tomb. And we want to welcome into the cemetery Jonathan Morningstar. What a great last name. You'll be under a marble headstone. SCL, we're going to be putting you under an obelisk tombstone. And Connie Johnson, you're going to be placed in a garden tomb. Thanks so much for your support. You can find History Goes Bump on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Google Play, and anywhere you can listen to podcasts. Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.